Hello, welcome to Audio News from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm Peter Goodwin. In this edition, how do you get healthcare to everybody all over the world? A distinguished gathering of top experts recently met in London to discuss how. It was at a symposium called The Future of Primary Healthcare, organised by the London School. It was held on the 30th anniversary of the Alma Ata Declaration. This was made at an international conference held in the town of Alma Ata, in what's now Kazakhstan, which declared that primary health care is the means by which health for all can be achieved. Jill Walt spelt out for me, though, why doing this was never going to be easy. I think there are lots of reasons, but one of the things that really stands out is the um, growth of the number of actors, i.e. organizations that are involved in health. So in 1978, when primary health care was launched, the WHO and UNICEF were the two organizations, the two UN organizations which were involved and promoted it. But if you look at the health situation today, both globally and within countries, there are many, many more actors. How successful, though, 30 years ago, was the Alma Ata Declaration? Well, I think that one of, the, one of the, the issues was that it was hijacked very early on, so it was difficult to say. Although it was launched in 78, it was actually based on the back of a, a number of different experiences in countries where all sorts of aspects of primary health care had been tried out. And the, the meeting at Alma Ata encapsulated all of those and presented it as a joint movement, a united movement to improve health for all around the world. What happened very soon after that was that you had um, debt rose, oil crises, recession, many economic changes and with those economic changes came the introduction of the neoliberal revolution, economic revolution and changes in policy and, and that meant that primary health care um, just got hijacked. We've been hearing a lot about inequalities, how do you think these can be tackled broadly? Well, of course, they're really difficult, but there are global things that need to be done around economic growth, trade issues, etc., removing some of the barriers to economic growth for the very poor countries. Um, for example, the United States spends a huge amount of money, money subsidizing its own farmers, and if it didn't spend that money subsidizing its own farmers, but looked towards spending money on um, al allowing developing countries to... Um, promote their own trade, things would get better. So you need economic growth, but you also need strong health systems to meet the issues and problems that people have. What's the one message that you would like to leave healthcare workers and organisers and activists, as we've just been hearing about? I think that there's the, the thing that's uh, very um, positive about what is on the health agenda at the moment is that there's a strong feeling that health systems need to be supported and strengthened and I think that's a very good message because it's going back to some of the characteristics of primary health care but we've gained from lots of the lessons learned of things that didn't go right and therefore hopefully by strengthening health systems we will actually move towards getting better health. Jill Walt, Professor of International Health Policy at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I heard more about inequalities and how to do something about them from Lucy Gilson, who works for both the London School and for Cape Town University. I asked her first about inequalities in South Africa, 
where they are among the world's biggest. What were the main reasons for that? Well, um, it's certainly the legacy of the past. The apartheid years are still present in the country today. Um, and it's also to do with the time lag between introducing policies and addressing those sorts of inequalities. So we only had 14 years of democracy. It takes a long time to tackle economic inequality. And some of the policies that have been introduced in the last 14 years have only contributed to widening the gap. You've talked about economic inequality, but we are here at a conference about primary health care and health care for all. What's the connection? So economic inequalities translate into health inequities. The lack of life chances amongst the poor to um, sustain their good health is a core reason for poor health. And we have to address those economic inequalities through wider action as well as through action within health systems. Now, if you were to sum up just say one small core reason for this, what do you think is the sort of underlying cause in the world at the moment? Well, with respect to economic inequalities, the nature of economic growth doesn't distribute um, opportunities equally between different population groups to, um, for, for households and families to generate their own wealth. So it's a pattern of economic growth. It's not just the level of growth, it's the way it occurs. Um, so that leads to economic inequalities and that means the poorest families don't have the resources to, um, to, to ensure that they have good health as well. Why are some of the countries doing reasonably well and other countries not doing reasonably well? So then we need to look at their, their experience of economic growth. We need to look at the way that economic growth is distributed within uh, countries across population groups. And we need to look at the provision of social services, health, education and other, and the ways uh, that whether or not they are preferentially benefiting poorest groups. Now it's a difficult question to ask, but what might be the obvious or the, 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 the logical way forward? Well, I think it's really important that we strengthen health systems and we need to strengthen um, curative care to some extent. But when we talk about strengthening health systems, we have to talk about fundamentally reorganising the way they work so that health and health equity is at the core of their operations. That means um, ensuring good quality services. It also means um, offering preferential gains to poorest groups through outreach. It means engaging those groups in um, concern for their own health and the health of their communities. So it's about the way we do things and that's what we have to change. People often feel completely powerless in the face of all of this. What could be done? Well, I think we have a growing body of experience um, across the world that shows that people can get involved in taking care of their own health, in taking care of their community's health. They can monitor and hold accountable um, leaders of health systems, for example. They can um, demand and advocate for the types of interventions that will improve their health. They can take those actions themselves. But by getting together, their power is stronger than when they work as individuals. So we need to promote collective action and empowerment. And there is growing evidence, epidemiological and other, to show that participation in health programming works for health. Lucy Gilson, Professor of Health Policy Systems for the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Another of the experts at the Alma Arta Symposium caused huge interest with his emphasis on the community and how ordinary people need to help plan and manage their own health care. He's Ravi Narayan from the Community Health Awareness Society in Bangalore. And I asked him what he sees as the big issues about primary health care that need to be tackled. Well, I think the primary issue that I was trying to focus on is that whether we talk about primary health care or public health 
or even just health care in general, the perspective of the community, of the people, of the patient, of the consumer is being lost by market mechanisms where profit becomes much more important than people's needs. And so what I'm trying to say is that how do we make this central? Because you can't talk about health in a country or in a system like the National Health Service without talking about the health of the people of Britain. And if the people of Britain are not involved in the decision making, in the monitoring, in the feedback, in the discussion of priorities, then there's something wrong. And that's what I'm trying to bring out. Why is it that the community has to be involved, in your opinion, and that the policies can't merely come from the top? Well, I think, you see, if you're talking about people's health, even if you take the more limited position, which I have difficulty with, of people as consumers and beneficiaries of what we do, I believe they should be true participants in a, in a socio-political sense, not just, you know, like consumers. But even if you do that, even the industry goes to its consumers and does consumer surveys, ask people what they want, how they want it. And yet when we build up health services, we never do that. We doctors and nurses and health providers seem to feel that we have all the answers. Now we may have the technical answers, we might even know the managerial ways of doing them more efficiently, but if we don't involve the people for whom we are doing this, how are we ever going to have the sort of corrective mechanisms or the adaptation or the creativity to even make things happen? So whenever systems allow the people who are affected by the decisions the system is making to have a voice, our experience over 30 years is that that system functions and functions better. Now I'm trying to go beyond the consumer movement, you know, talking about a political process in which people are involved. What in fact are you doing in India? Because you've been talking about the need to do new things, you're conducting what you have almost described as a national experiment. Well, I would say we are the countervailing power to the existing policy-making process. Now, India has been having policies. Indian constitution mandates the government to reach everybody. So there is a constitutional, a legal, a political process. But over the years, this political process has got hijacked by various exploitative and various sort of interest groups where the people or it is the people who are not being reached, the people in the margins of society, the peoples in the disadvantages part of India, the sub-Saharan Africa part of India, which is the central India, are not being reached. Now how, how do you make the government monitor its own policies which are very, very well worded, they are very well intentioned, but not reaching, except by having the people in those areas unorganized. Now we organize them and make them a voice to make the policy different, where we talked about a countervailing power. So we are not talking about taking over. That was the old Marxist understanding of class-class struggle and one class takes over from the other, the underclass. We are talking about engaging with existing policymakers, academics, researchers, and getting the people's voice central to be the monitor and the corrective. So it's like a politics of engagement, not confrontation. You've talked about accredited social health activists. Now, what are these and how can you get them? Okay, this is a term used by the national government. It's not by civil society. The national government, after the elections in 2004, evolved a program called the National Rural Health Mission. 
this is like one of the world's largest primary healthcare programs. They are planning that what would have been called maybe 20 years ago, you know, barefoot doctors or community health workers, that India has now realized, and that through the pressure of civil society, that what you need is social health activists. So women who are health activists, but who see health in a social thing, and they are accredited because some system, whether the government or the community, must know that they are, uh, you know, have been trained by a certain. So, of course, the, the reason for using the words are also because they form a very nice acronym, ASHA, which means hope. So they are women of hope. They are, we are hoping that through them and their participation and their activism, as the globalizing of health solidarity from below. Now here at the Alma Arta, 30 years on mm. meeting in London, you've called for a paradigm shift mm. and you described the alternatives of either the biomedical techno solutions or a different solution involving social issues in the community. Could you enlighten me on what you're talking about in this paradigm shift? Okay, this is absolutely central to the work that we have done. This paradigm shift is that if you focus on health and healthcare, whether you're talking about the NHS in Britain, whether you're talking about the National Rural Health Mission, or you're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa, which is still grappling with the challenges of healthcare, there is a tendency to think of health as distribution systems of some commodity, whether it's a condom or bed net or TB treatment or vaccines or so on. And all the effort in health systems because of that very techno-managerial approach is how do we distribute these efficiently, how do we distribute them cost-effectively. We believe health is not about commodity distribution. Health is a social, when you say the social and community model, we go back to WHO's original definition of physical, mental, social and spiritual well-being in society, not just individual. Individuals can't be well if society is not well, or at least the immediate society, the community, the family. So how do you make healthy societies and healthy families if you don't evolve educational and social processes in which the technology is an, not an end but a means? Briefly, what would be the take-home message that you would like to give healthcare workers and those who are concerned with these issues all over the world? Well, I would say that what I'm trying to get at is in whatever the healthcare worker is doing, at whatever level, at primary, secondary, tertiary, give your patient, your patient's family, and the community from where that patient comes much more importance in your thinking, in your planning, in your evaluating, in your monitoring of your work. They are not means to your work. It is their health and their well-being which is the end of your work and therefore they must be central to your thinking and your way of understanding health. Ravi Narayan, one of the many participants with strong opinions at the London Symposium held to discuss primary health care 30 years after the Alma Arta Declaration. Health in countries affected by conflict was the focus of another key meeting also held at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Mental Health in Fragile States was a symposium looking at how to manage mental illness in countries affected by conflict and war. The organiser was Egbert Sondorp 
and he gave me examples of what sorts of mental health problems they've been looking at and how these affect the well-being of ordinary people. Over the last decade there have been done quite a few epidemiological studies and what always comes out is high rates of PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress syndrome, and uh, depression. We're not sure really what this means. We still have to do more work on that. But you can see that a lot of people are traumatized, and that is partly a normal reaction if you see to what those people go through. And it's definitely not that all need our help, but there's always a percentage of people who need kind of more specialized help. But a great majority would need uh, also assistance in getting back to, to, to their lives and build up their livelihoods. Egbert Sondor went on to tell me about the experts at the mental health seminar I'd be able to meet later on and put questions to. We will be speaking with Dr. Willem van der Put, who is director of HealthNet TPO, which is an NGO, one of the few NGOs specialised in providing mental health and psychosocial services, in particular in conflict areas. It's one of our partners. Another partner is uh, IMC, Intermedical Corps. We also organise some courses together with as part of our program where we do try to link academia with practitioners out in the field. The second speaker was Dr. Alia, who is at the Ministry of Health uh, in Kabul, Afghanistan. You will hear if you talk to her what the difficulties are which a woman in her position within the Ministry of Health, where there's hardly any mental health services, what the kind of thing she is facing. And indeed I did. As Director of Mental Health in Afghanistan, Alia Ibrahim Zai has to cope not only with living in a country at war, but also with the need to deal with deep cultural issues. Attitudes to your mental illness, if you live in Afghanistan, are different depending on whether you're male or female, able-bodied or disabled. I asked Alia what's happening to her countrymen and women. Our people are suffering from anxiety, depression and trauma. It is very common on f- female rather than male, and also disabled uh, compared to non-disabled. Why do women feel the trauma and the distress more than men? Because uh, you uh, know that the women do not have uh, authority. They are under the control of uh, men. Uh, and even when they get sick, they cannot allow to go to doctor. And also they are not allowed to go to school, to uh, get job and so on. And also there are lots of psychosocial problems such as violence, domestic violence, forced marriage, child marriage, uh, and uh, jobless, etc. Alia Ibrahim Zai from Kabul, Afghanistan. And I wondered, faced with all of these cultural, lifestyle, educational and many other variables, what did Egbert Sondop think should be the big message for people all around the world? I hope that people start understanding that they can do something about it. That it's not something which is alien to their normal day-to-day routine that should be done by others that it could be very much part and parcel of normal health services uh, and incorporated in the normal health services because that's the only way to deal with this quite massive burden of disease. Egbert Sondorp. Well, one organisation that's certainly doing something about it in a number of places is HealthNet TPO. It's based in Amsterdam, but it works on healthcare development in low- and middle-income countries and has a lot of practical experience in conflict zones around the world. 
I asked the director, Willem van der Put, about their work. What HealthNet is doing is uh, contributing to the reconstruction or even construction of health systems in uh, countries that are going through crisis. Uh, what we're trying to do is to build up systems in order for people to be able to take control of their own health situation. How do you do that? Uh, we, um, we have uh, uh, three special areas of which we uh, think we have something to contribute. Uh, one of them, the first one is mental health and psychosocial work. Uh, the second one is uh, disease control, specifically malaria programs. And the third one is in building health systems, which is, of course, the overall condition for most anything to get done, but specifically the financial aspects of how people manage their own health systems. These are great ideas, but Villain made sure he stressed to me the importance of harnessing local expertise. New initiatives can easily fail if local communities and local workers and specialists aren't among the prime movers spearheading the efforts. The whole trick is not to have it come from another country, but to, to work through the local channels, be they government channels, if they are, again, as I said, able and willing to, to receive us. If not, then uh, we will always be working with the local people who are helping us to find out what would be the best contribution to be made. HealthNet works in a number of countries currently affected by conflict, and in the past it's been in Cambodia. I asked Willem van der Put what they did there to help improve mental health. One of the most important things there is also that uh, there are two things to be done. And the, the one thing is to uh, indeed have a, a serious attention for the inclusion of basic psychiatry in the health system for those people that need that kind of help. The other type of work, which is quite different but connected, of course, is to set up uh, a number of interventions and to teach those interventions to a whole range of different people, be they teachers or village leaders or whoever they might be, to help people uh, break out of that, that cycle of silence, if you like, people who are afraid to talk about the things of the past because for either political reasons, personal reasons, or uh, what has tend to become the dominant culture after severe warfare is that you just don't talk about the things that are too painful to talk about. And I'm not saying that talking is everything uh, uh, for uh, complete recovery, but if there is absolute silence about what happened in the past, people tend to be locked up and uh, lose all hope uh, together. In, in Cambodia, we've learned that uh, the most important thing is to compose groups, and the most important thing in composing groups is that you make the right composition. Put people together who will easily trust each other and do not expect people of all different backgrounds and different roles in society to open up quite easily because there's too much fear around to have that done. Willen van der Put from HealthNet TPO based in Amsterdam. Clearly, mental health has been overlooked in the past, swept under the carpet, often not even recognised and frequently not understood. But it can impact the entire development and recovery of a region, making it harder for a country to emerge from adversity into prosperity and health. At the Alma Ata Anniversary Conference in London, Vikram Patel talked about improving primary health care in the context of mental health problems and the problems associated with other chronic diseases. I asked him, was it hard to deal with chronic diseases when primary health care seems more geared up to treating acute illnesses? In terms of chronic diseases, we're referring to cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, a whole range of mental and neurological disorders, uh, the consequences of injuries, uh, sensory disorders, and now, of course, in the realm of ARTs, HIV AIDS as well. The biggest challenge really is the very central focus of primary healthcare that you mentioned earlier on acute short-term treatments for acute problems. What's going wrong internationally at the moment? Is the problem getting out of hand? 
Well, I think there are a number of factors, but I'd like to point out two. The first is the lack of acknowledgement that chronic diseases are a genuine cause of suffering and ill health in developing countries. There seems to be an impression amongst the global health community that infectious diseases and perinatal and nutritional disorders are the only health problems. It's not to deny they are very important, but there's a failure to acknowledge the coexisting uh, a burden of chronic diseases. The second, and perhaps this is a, a more global issue, is the lack of recognition at the level of international trade uh, on the impact of the health of um, the people in developing countries of trade policies, such as, for example, opening up trade barriers to the importation of trans fat foods. So if you're eating junk food, then that can undermine many of your efforts in the health sector. Well, absolutely. It can completely negate and even reverse them. Well, let's set that to one side just for the moment, but to ask you, first of all, what should the primary health care be doing at the moment to try and improve the situation as far as treating chronic diseases is concerned? Well, I think the most important thing is providing support to the primary health care system to achieve this. I can't imagine primary care can do this without the political will, in particular to strengthen the human resources that are needed to achieve long-term continuing care. Now, that seems clear, but how do you do it? Well, I think shifting the emphasis on provision of most of this care to low-cost health workers, community or lay health workers, that have been done so remarkably well for maternal and child health. We have to extend the same model, and of course, there's very good evidence that doing so produces very good health benefits as well. So it isn't a second-class health care. It's better than nothing for sure and may even be as good as tertiary medical care. Right, so task shifting is one of the buzzwords here, and also empowering communities and putting some of the work in the hands of ordinary people, healthcare workers, workers for instance. Absolutely. Well, I even go beyond that. I say even putting some of the empowerment into the hands of patients themselves, uh, having, for example, expert patients being s- uh, providers of healthcare for other patients who suffer from similar diseases. And I think a great example of that kind of model is Alcoholics Anonymous. I can perhaps ask you about your own field, mental health, because even quite sophisticated techniques like cognitive therapy and group therapy, it is in fact possible to practice in quite different settings from the usual ones we think about, big cities in advanced countries. Absolutely right. Uh, In fact, this is some of the most exciting evidence emerging from the global mental health field. Evidence that demonstrates that non-mental health professionals, even village individuals living in villages who have no health background at all can be trained to provide psychological treatments with great effect. A critical issue I will point out here is that you must twin the training with continuing support and supervision. So this doesn't mean that specialists are not needed at all, but they're needed in a very different capacity. What sorts of social change are needed to make these things happen? Well, I think, as I said initially, a public acknowledgement at all levels of the health system that chronic diseases and mental illness are important causes of suffering. Secondly, an agreement that you need a combination of both healthcare interventions as well as larger structural interventions, for example, going back to our earlier point about trade policies, uh, to ensure that while you're treating people with established mental or chronic diseases, you're not actually fueling an increase in the overall number uh, through trade policies that are harmful to the health of people. And what sort of take-home message would you emphasise to 
people all over the world tackling chronic disease problems and trying to solve it with primary health care solutions. Well, the most important message is you do not need expensive biotechnology in hospitals to manage people with chronic diseases. You can do very well with a combination of low-cost health workers providing support and interventions and patients being informed and empowered to actually take care of their own health. Vikram Patel, Professor of International Mental Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, with more on the basic message of empowering a much wider range of people in healthcare, so that all resources can be used to the maximum. The London Conference heard from specialists working in several African countries, from India, Switzerland, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Thailand, the United Kingdom, and from organisations like UNICEF, the WHO and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The London School's director, Andy Haynes, chaired the first day of the meeting, and the second day was chaired by Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. He released a special edition of The Lancet devoted entirely to primary health care to coincide with the Alma Arta Anniversary Conference. So I asked Richard why The Lancet was taking primary health care so seriously. And what did he think were the really big points coming out of the busy meeting we were both attending? First of all, why has The Lancet devoted an issue to primary health care? The Lancet is seen as a very biomedical journal that appeals to specialists uh, who often work in hospitals and academic medical centres. What the signal we're trying to send out here is that the future of the global health system depends upon a complete reorientation of health around primary health care. That this relentless specialization that we see in medicine is actually destroying the possibility of having access to health services from the most basic conditions in the least advantaged parts of the world. So what we're saying here is, here is the best evidence to show that primary health care works, number one, and number two, the foundation of an advocacy campaign. And what has come out of the meeting then? So far what we've seen is a tremendous amount of powerful evidence that primary health care systems work to save lives of mothers, newborns, children, people with chronic diseases. That evidence, which is in the scientific community, now needs to be amplified into the policy community. And what I see this conference is doing is mobilizing a movement around primary health care, again, 30 years after Alma Arta, to get it into the policy world. Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. And that's all from this edition of Audio News. I hope you've enjoyed the programme. Until next time, from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.